Hi, everyone. This week, we are featuring an encore episode during our mindful break. This is one of your favorite SparkJoy podcast episodes from 2019. We hope you enjoy it, and we look forward to seeing you at the top of next year. Happy holidays from SparkJoy podcast. I feel like there are many useful things in my life where they serve me well, even though they don't really particularly spark joy. So I find that a question is easier, like, does this energize me? Meaning, does this make my life easier or smoother in some way? Or like what I often will say is like, do I need it? Do I use it? Do I love it? Because sometimes I have something that I love that I don't need or use. And sometimes I have something that I use that I don't particularly like. But it's like, if I don't need it, use it or love it, then that for me makes it clear that I probably don't need this thing. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Gretchen Rubin is one of the most influential writers on habits, happiness, and human nature. She's the author of many books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, and The Happiness Project. And today, she's debuting her newest book, Outer Order, Inner Calm. Literally today, it launches. We're so excited. Welcome to Spark Joy, Gretchen. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Welcome to Spark Joy. We're so happy to have you here. So, Gretchen, you've written lots of amazing books and more on the way today. Yes. But you've actually generated entire schools of thoughts that have inspired lots and lots of people, millions of people, actually. Most recently, before this latest book, The Happiness Project really birthed a movement, and you are currently the host of your own award-winning podcast called Happier. So let's start there. How do you define happiness? Well, you know, I started my career in law, and so I have a lot of memories of spending an entire semester arguing about things like the definition of contract and the definition of tort. So I actually never do define it. There's something like 15 academic definitions of happiness, and people can spend a lot of time arguing about whether it's contentment or bliss or peace or satisfaction or, you know, well-being. And I think that for the lay person, it's it's good that happiness is very broad. It can encompass a lot of different ideas about happiness. And I think for the ordinary person, it's more helpful to think about, well, is this going to make me happier? If I did this, if I did that, is that going to make me happier? Rather than worrying about what is happiness. Because I think it's very hard to wrap your, your arms around it. Yeah, it's such a big topic. And similar to that, we have another word that we use very often on this show, joy, which is equally yes. as broad and hard to yes. kind of nail down. Yeah. And, you know, we really want to explore today the intersection between joy and happiness. And when it comes to joy, of course, we're referring to our possessions and what we're choosing to surround ourselves with. So I was curious from your perspective and in your research on happiness, do you distinguish joy and happiness or do you see a difference between the two? Now, again, I feel like it's like a, it's just arguing about definitions. Right. And I, I just don't find that to be helpful because mm -hmm. we, you and I could violently agree or we could very much disagree. And it's sort of like in the end, what have we learned? Yeah. yeah. 
I, I have to say that I think anyone who feels they can define happiness and or joy could possibly say that they could define it for themselves right now. But they certainly can't define what it's going to mean for them tomorrow. And they certainly can't define what it means for anyone else besides themselves. So I'm with you right there. Yeah. And even Marie Kondo's definition of joy might be different from Gretchen Rubin's definition of joy or Kristen Ivey's definition of joy. So yeah, it does get a little complex. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, and I think people have have an issue with the idea of something, because for some people, joy is a very, very high bar. Mm -hmm. And it feels very exceptional, you know, more exceptional than you would experience with a t-shirt. Right. But it's a helpful question, just in terms of, you know, laying out some kind of framework. Well, I also think it's kind of interesting, this idea that, you know, it's kind of okay to feel that you can be looking for happiness and joy, that maybe it is good to kind of ponder that for yourself. Because I think, you know, just like you said, a lot of people have such a hard time even getting close to that. There's maybe an element that, you know, we see a lot of memes in the Marie Kondo world about, you know, if if I only kept things that sparked joy, I would basically get rid of everything I owned, which is, you know, funny in a way, but not really, because I think for some people, that's really kind of true, you know? Well, it's interesting because I find that sparking joy, that to me suggests too high an emotional connection. I feel like there are many useful things in my life where they serve me well, even though they don't really particularly spark joy. So I find that a question is easier, like, does this energize me? Meaning, does this make my life easier or smoother in some way? Or like what I often will say is like, do I need it? Do I use it? Do I love it? Because sometimes I have something that I love that I don't need or use. And sometimes I have something that I use that I don't particularly like. But it's like, if, if I don't need it, use it or love it, then that for me makes it clear that I probably don't need this thing. But sparking joy, there's a lot of things that don't really spark joy that I think are worth keeping. Sure. Yeah. I really love what you're saying about love because that's kind of where I intersected with joy. I rarely, I think, use the term spark joy when I was actually working through my own tidying moment and first exposed to the Kamari method which is why I turned to calling my business for the love of tidy because that's the term I use the most often. I would pick something up and if I said, oh, I love this, I'm keeping this for sure, then that's what would stay. So totally get that. Well, it's also, I think that tidying, like if you're a person who needs outer order and who responds to outer order, there's great joy that comes from outer order. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, that's where I get my joy is like walking by that closet. I'm like, that makes me feel great. Right. You know, so I definitely get I definitely get the vibe, but I'm not sure I get it on a, like an object by object level. You know, but I think one of the things that you see, and I'm sure this is the experience you you two have seen over and over, is that people really have very different kinds of relationships to their possessions. Individuals are different and then how they feel about various kinds of possessions are different even within an individual. There's a lot going on between people and their possessions. I can see why there would be a lot of frameworks that would resonate with different people because people aren't coming from the same place. So they don't think about it in the same way. Mm -hmm. Very true. Yeah, I think that, that for me, a, a lot of it has to do with functionality. So for example, yes. a can opener that doesn't work yes. does not bring joy or happiness or usefulness into my life whatsoever. So I think in terms of, that, is this object doing its job well? And if, But does it spark joy, well, even when it yeah. is doing its job well? Yeah, so it's, that's a really, it's very elusive. And I think 
I think it's an intentionally kind of vague concept, but yeah. but I do think that that there is a risk that people get caught up in this. Well, what does it mean that I'm yes. having a hard time finding joy in anything, let alone the stuff that's in my closet? So I totally, I think that there's a lot of nuance here that I think you're really hitting on that I think is important. And one of the things that we wanted to talk about was your interview with Marie Kondo. I just read it and it was really great. And even in your a recent podcast of yours, you talked about tidying up with Marie Kondo on Netflix and you gave her a gold star. You gave the series a gold star and it was really interesting. What makes you happy when you think in terms of, of tidying up? You mentioned a little bit about really liking that kind of outer um, order that you were talking about. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, I love the outer order. And I have to say, watching this show, like one of my favorite things to do, my sister, uh, who's the co-host of the Happier podcast with me, says that sometimes I can be a bit of a happiness bully. And one way it comes out is I'm begging my friends always to let me help them clear clutter because you get that contact high of bringing the clutter, but without the emotional and decision fatigue that comes from your own stuff. So it's like, it's so clear when it's somebody else's things, like get rid of that. You don't want that. I can tell you don't even like that. That thing's broken. Like you don't even know what that is. Like it's so easy <laughs> um, with your own stuff. It feels so much more complicated. Um, So I love the show because I just love seeing people achieve that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see like just how they pull back on it. I'm just endlessly fascinated with people's relationship to their possessions and and like the different roles that people play, you know, in couples and how they help each other or don't help each other. Or there's just little moments that I think are fascinating. Yeah. So I can't get enough of it. I love it. We love it too, of course. And we've watched probably every episode, definitely binge worthy. And it's just amazing how we've also seen that connection. And we've also had that experience with our clients where they've mentioned how easy it was for them to help a spouse or to help a friend declutter, but then they're challenged by making their own decisions. So yeah, that's definitely something we've witnessed as well. Well, you know, something that I wish that I, you know, the problem with writing a book is like, at a certain point you hand it in and I still have had more ideas um, since I've actually want to write something about like things that I've thought about since. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I thought about since, and this was a moment in in one of the shows was there was a couple where the woman had like an insane amount of clothing, like tons and tons of clothes. And the husband had a lot, but not as much as she did. And there's a moment where the woman is coming in and she's standing in the, the doorway of the husband. And she's like, you're getting rid of that or you're keeping that. And Marie Kondo is like, it works best if people work on their own clothes. Like, you go work on your own clothes. Like, right. you got plenty to keep you busy. And that's one thing that I've noticed. And I was just talking to a friend of mine where he was saying, oh, my wife's so messy. And like, when I'm taking care of the kids, everything's neat as a pin. But when she's there, they're so messy, all this, all this. I can't get anything done. She wants me to like sit down and do these things, but I can't because I have to race around the kitchen and get everything cleaned up. And I was like, well, could you have an office? He's like, oh, I have an office. I was like, well, why don't you work in your office? And he said, because it's too messy. And I was yeah, like, okay, buddy, let me just go out on a limb here and say, clean up your own office. And then you can work in your clean, tidy office that no one else ever goes into. And then the rest of the house won't bother you so much. And you'll be able to sit down and do your tasks without pointing the finger at someone else all the time. Right. <laughs> and he just sent me a little video from what he did this weekend. And he cleaned it up and it just looks amazing. Wow. And he's like, now I can work in here. And it's just this funny thing where often we're like, 
I feel like there's so much clutter. You need to clear your clutter. Where our clutter doesn't feel as overwhelming to us, but actually if we clear our clutter, we will feel much better and we can actually control our own clutter. So you don't have to wait for other people to cooperate or get involved. And what I think this guy realized, because he is a very, I know his personality, is he will keep his own space very clean and tidy. And then he, he can always retreat to that if he needs to. So it's just interesting how like a lot of times it's not even just you in isolation. It's you engaging with other people and how their stuff is making you feel and how your stuff is making them feel. Somebody said to me, like, my husband complains that there's crumbs on the kitchen counter and he's like at this giant pile of stuff in the living room. But it's like that feels okay to him because that's his. Right. Side. So, you know, there's all this. It's just fascinating. Yeah, we call that finger pointing, uh, tidy framing. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, yeah. It's like everybody else clean up your stuff and then I'll feel like <laughs> yeah. everything's under control. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's this issue of control and anxiety associated with that. Yeah. So, so interesting. You mentioned about the video. I actually had someone send me a video of her apartment and she wanted to show me how her new roommate of two weeks was keeping things so messy. She couldn't hardly stand it. And could I help her? And it was like, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe she wanted me to come over and do an intervention or something. But it was like, I felt very bad because it was clearly provoking a lot of anxiety in this, yeah. this person who, and most of it was because she couldn't control it. It wasn't her stuff. You know, it was in her space and she felt that it was just creating massive amounts of anxiety for her. And it was super, super interesting. Well, I, my sister, uh, again, my co-host, Elizabeth, is very messy. She's clutter blind. So she just doesn't even see it. It doesn't bother her. And I remember one time I, I we were talking about on the podcast that I was saying how we were together in a hotel room and we were getting ready to do something and I was a little bit anxious. And so I went around and was like tight, like tidying up her stuff, um, as an example, which she knows me so well. And I said, like thinking back, I'm like, and it was probably kind of annoying to you that I was messing with your stuff, but you understood that I needed to do that. And she said, probably it was, you know what I mean? So it's like her messiness bothered me, but then my tidying bothered her. You know, it's like one of those things that out of love, you kind of have yep. to try to find that middle ground. Yep. But this is a big issue that I've never seen anybody talk about, about open offices, because people often talk about the noise and the interruptions that come from open offices. But I think that for me, the visual noise mm -hmm. of seeing mm -hmm. all those people with all their different things and different level, I mean, most people don't work, like it just, even if everybody's reasonably tidy, it all just looks messy because it's all out. I would find that very visually exhausting myself apart from the noise and the and the other people, just the stuff itself would be hard for me. Yeah, I definitely don't miss the clutter that comes with corporate or open spaces. Yeah. <laughs> I remember cubicle life and yeah, you're right. Sometimes even when you're walking through the hallways or just wanting yes. to take a break and relax, if someone's space looks a little bit anxious or cluttered, it can impact you in a way, even on a subconscious level as you're experiencing your space and trying to get your work done. And, and yeah, it's a factor as well as, of course, um, the noise. Well, one of the things that I suggest in the book, and I'm dying to see if anybody will take me up on this, is I suggest that in an office, you have a chief clutter officer. <laughs> because what a lot of times there's no one who has kind of the authority to say, like, why is this here? You need to get rid of this. Right. Does this belong to anybody? Like, you know, 
it's sort of in this limbo of like no one really owns it. And so who's responsible or even feels like they have the power to get away? Like, you know, you get some cheap glass vase. Well, whose is it? No one knows. So no one feels like they can move it or put it in the recycling or give it away or do anything with it because it's not theirs. And somebody needs to be sort of tasked with saying, there's a pile of files on the floor that we really can't have that. Like, it's just get it, like put it away or, or recycle it or shred it or whatever you need to do. Or maybe these belong to somebody who left this office a year ago. We don't even know because right. people are just like stepping over it. So you kind of need to have somebody who feels like it's their job to deal with that background level of clutter that is so easy for an office situation to sort of to create, you know, like the weird plastic containers with no lids yep. who nobody claims. I mean, at some point, somebody's got to go through it and say, like, what's going on here? Let's get rid of all this stuff. And maybe it should be the same person who complains about the popcorn and the microwave. Yes. The smell, right? So if that, you know, because that's kind of the same thing, but it's like, we don't really think about the visual aspects of it the way that we do the smell or the, or the noise aspects of it. Well, and there's the visual aspect, but there's also like the storage aspect, which is when you have a lot of things that no one uses, it starts taking up room and then it's hard for people to put things away properly. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm sure you've encountered this whenever I clear clutter for myself or for other people. One of the kind of the mysteries of clearing clutter is that when you get rid of all the things you don't need, don't use, don't love, you know, when you're recycling them or tossing them or donating them or whatever, you end up feeling like you have more. Because it's like, oh, every plastic container has a lid and can be used. Yeah. So I feel like I have a container for every size and it's right here and I can get it and it does, it's not falling on my head. Or I can see all the clothes that I wear. So I feel like, oh, wow, I have like five blouses that I can wear with these pants. Whereas before I felt like, oh my gosh, this one doesn't fit. This one is kind of scratchy. So I never feel like wearing it. This one I can only wear with that one sweater, which I hate. Like when all that stuff's gone, then you're like, oh, I have so much to choose from. And so... You need somebody, though, who's like, okay, this mug is cracked. This has a weird smell. Nobody wants to use it. This is warped or whatever. This belongs to somebody and clearly like came from their house and should go back to their house. Let's get rid of that stuff. And then everybody's like, oh, we've got plenty of room to put things away easily. And everything that we see, we can use. I would have so been the CC. Oh, I guess that would be. <laughs> I know. Like, that's my dream come true. Yeah, yes, I cracked that whip. I definitely would have volunteered. But, see, <laughs> but the funny thing about me is like, if you saw, like, I'm not that tidy. Like, I'm not that, like, it's not like everything is, per- it's like, it's aesthetically. One of the things I'm interested in is some people really want to get to a very extreme aesthetic place mm-hmm. where everything's perfectly folded or matched or in containers or beautifully labeled or whatever. I don't have that. But what I don't like is like when stuff is clogging the system, when there is stuff in the way or like this, I don't know what this is. Why do I just recently clicked? I mean, I've been thinking about this for years and I just found three and a half whole cases of blank CDs for which I have no purpose at all. Why do I have these? Why did I ever have them? I have no idea why I acquired them. Why have I had them at least five years, maybe 10 years? Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, let's get, now that's gone. I feel like, oh, this is great, you know? But it's not like everything looks beautiful. It's just like there's something that was in my way that's not in my way anymore. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone. Extend your tidying experience by joining the Spark Joy Club, our online community filled with our clients, fellow listeners, and Kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey. 
If you find yourself buried under clothing, stuck on storage, or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members, we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all. Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click on Join the Club to get started. And now back to the show. It's not about like perfection. It's really just about figuring out what your comfort level is in terms of the things around you, or at least even when they're messy, knowing where they go. So it's not anxiety inducing. And we've experienced that ourselves, just, you know, working through the Kanmari method. And I know for me, I practice maybe 98% of Marie Kondo's recommendations. I've tried all of them, but about 98% of them have stuck with me. And I still feel like I'm definitely tidy and I've definitely reached that holistic zone of tidiness, I guess. But we also know, and we're also open to other solutions. We don't feel like Kanmari is a one size fits all or a perfect match for everyone. So we're so excited to dig in a little deeper here today about your new book on organizing and productivity and your perspective. Uh, Again, Outer Order Intercom launching today. And uh, it's all about getting us focused on time, energy, money, and people, places, activities, and our values as well. So tell us a little bit more about your new project and what led you to address this particular challenge at this time. Well, I have been writing about happiness and good habits and human nature for a long time. And one of the things I noticed when the Happiness Project came out 10 years ago, and I've continued to notice ever since, is that whenever I would talk about anything related to outer order, people got energized in a different way. Because I talk about eating healthfully, and I talk about exercise, and I talk about stepping away from your screens and all these things. And people are interested in whatever and want to know about that. But when it's something related to outer order, it's like there was like special, like a special charge to it. Like whenever I would talk about making your bed, people would laugh and they would talk. And then when I would say, oh, I'm the kind of person who makes my bed in a hotel room on the day that I check out, some people, you know, people would laugh and talk and like everybody wanted, like if I was giving a speech or something. And I was like, what is this? And I noticed for myself too, like it seemed like there's this disproportionate energy that comes from it. Like, you know, in the context of a happy life, cleaning your coat closet is trivial. You know, we can all agree to that. And yet it seems like there's more of a charge that comes from it than you would expect. So I was very interested in like exploring why that might be. And then how could we create that outer order and then maintain it? Because a big thing is like, we've all had the experience of like, you clean your kitchen, it's amazing. And two weeks later, it's like nothing ever happened to it. You know, so how do you create it? How do you maintain it? And also, I mean, from all my work and my observation, I really think there's no magic one-size-fits-all solution. I really do think that people come to the world with different perspectives and different things work for them. And so what I wanted to do with my book was not arrive at like the one true method that was what I was saying was the best way, because I don't think that there really can be a best way, because I think it's whatever is best for me, for you, for somebody else. So I wanted to have just like this panoply of ideas, just like a million different ideas so that when you go through, you just sort of pick and choose. And some of them you're like, oh my gosh, I could totally do this. And another one you're like, I would never do that. 
And I think it's kind of a psych up book because, you know, every once in a while you read a book and you're like, you're halfway through and you're like, I can't even finish this book. I got to like leap up out of my seat and take action. So I wanted to be this kind of book where like you fling this thing over your shoulder and run to your medicine cabinet because you're like, all I want to do right now is like go through my shampoo bottles. Like that's what I'm trying to because but there's lots of different ways to get people there. So I try to recognize that and have lots of options so that everybody can find the things that strike a chord with them. One of the things I, I really like about all the tips that you give, and again, I, I really absolutely am on board with this idea that one size does not fit all. I, in my work, I think having so much contact with so many different people, I've really become so much more patient and understanding uh, of where people are at. And yeah. I think as a professional organizer, I've really learned that when someone, when a client says to me, well, you know, I'm really okay with this amount of these things, even if it seems to be taking up more space than maybe it should. Now, I could say, well, you can't be okay with it because that's not what it yeah. says in a book. <laughs> yeah. But I've learned that it's not my it's not my life, it's not my stuff. And, you know, I certainly have experienced being okay with one amount of things and then later, a year later or, you know, whenever, I've changed my mind about it. So I have to allow people to be where they're at. And my job is just to say, awesome. If you want to do something different, let me know. and We can work on that. But so I do think that those, those tips are really super helpful. And I really, I really like the way that you focus on just getting people started and recognizing that even if they don't do all of it, just doing some of it, just making your bed in the morning can make an enormous difference in your life. It's one of the things that you talk about is this idea that beware of fake work and make work. What are those concepts about? So one of the worst things we can do is to do well something that we don't need to do at all. And fake work and make work is when you sort of pour too much energy into something that doesn't matter. So for instance, I got an email from somebody the other day and she said, oh, I had to spend so much of my day shredding my old lesson plans because I'm a teacher. And I was like, why are you shredding them at all? These are not top secret documents. <laughs> like these are not like no one's going to have identity theft from your lesson plans for your sixth graders. Like that is fake work because you don't need to be doing that at all. And I think we want to look, you know, and it's like, are you alphabetizing your spices? Now, some people want their alpha. They really need their spices alphabetized, but maybe you don't. Or maybe, you know, you're thinking, okay, well, I need to have a tab for everything. It's like, yeah, well, maybe it, there's only five documents in here. Maybe you don't need a tab. And so you don't want to create work for yourself where it's not actually contributing to what your aim is, which is to have a happier, healthier, more productive, more creative life. Because I think sometimes people can get carried away with just stuff that in the end doesn't really matter. Things that are going to be tossed out right away or you know, overly organizing things that are going to quick. I mean, we you see that with toys. Like, you can get super, super specific in how you sort toys, but then they all get mixed up again okay. together. So it's like, what you know? Are you gonna, do you really want to spend an hour doing that, and then getting angry when your child gets them all mixed up again? Because that's just the nature of the toy. That's not a good use of your time and your energy for that kind of thing. Okay. Elsewhere, it might pay off, but not not in there. Not with that. I think we come up across that a lot in our work because it's interesting how decluttering exposes so much unfinished business as well. Yes. Oh my gosh. So true. 
Yeah, I have my clients start a action list. And so even if they say something as trivial as, I'm going to sew that onto that jacket later, I list everything they say. And first, I don't tell them why, but I list every time they say, oh, later, someday, I'm going to fix that. Oh, I got to take that to the tailor or glue that together. So every time they say that, I actually write it down. So they can realize like visually how many actions or how much work in this case they've created for themselves. And then we walk through and say, you know, is this really a value add exercise? Does this really need to be a task or is it, as you say, fake work? (laughs) Well, and then there's the tragedy of like, and I've seen people, in fact, my mother-in-law was just saying she had done this where you have a garment that for some reason you don't really like and you're not wearing it. So you say to yourself, well, it doesn't really fit or it needs to be hemmed or it needs to like the waist needs to be taken in or something. And then sometimes you even do that. And then it still doesn't work. And you're like, I want, I just spent more money on something to kind of try to get myself over the fact that I really don't want to wear it. Right. Now I'm dug a, my hole even deeper. I just, I had this beautiful, gorgeous skirt. It was like classic thing. It was 65% off. It was beautiful. I bought it with no way to wear it, no place to wear it, no shoes to wear it with. It was too big. I was like, and I was like, I almost took it to the tailor. And then I'm like, this is a failed purchase. Deal with it. And give it to somebody who will go and love it because it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. One of the things I talk about is um, power hour. And this is where for an hour a week, you sort of do all those little tasks that are not significant, but they're kind of things that can be done at any time. And things that can be done at any time are often done at no time. And what's funny is that, and I've heard this from so many people, is that with power hour, it seems like it's just an hour, so it feels very manageable. And yet, People are amazed at how much you can get done. Like in the course of one month, what you've gotten done in power hour is a lot. And then a lot of people actually can get their spouses to do it too, because there's something very appealing about it. And it's like, then you really have a lot of stuff getting done. Cause like one person's going to the hardware store to get the <laughs> light bulb replacement. One person's going to the tailor. And, and so that's another way of handling that action list because those things do they clutter our minds and they make us feel weighed down. And then you do get this this sense of relief and charge when you finally get it done. Somebody was saying to me that she'd heard the proverb, the stewing is worse than the doing. And I think that's very true. You know, you can dread something so much more than it actually requires from you to just go do it. So power hour is a way to handle that. I just experienced my power hour yesterday. (laughs) Excellent. I guess I didn't call it that technically, but it was definitely a power hour. I was having a moment where I just felt like I had some big projects to work on for sure. And I just had all of these little tasks around and they were really bothering me. So I just kind of did away with, I'm just going to do the priority things to, I'm just going to pick up all these little things, cashing this check or writing this letter or putting a stamp on something, whatever it was at the time. And it was just so amazing just to create a moment to just take care of those little things. It was more empowering than I really expected. And it got me in the mode of taking on the bigger task that was a little bit more important. I know you talk a lot about procrastination in Outer Order Intercom as well. And you've coined that phrase procrasticlear. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about that because procrastination is something we all struggle with. Well, I think that your story illustrates a very important tension with procrastinating clearing because sometimes that clearing clutter and those minor tasks 
are helpful in preparation. They do help us focus. They do make us feel like we're clearing the weeds out of our way. And they do help us get that energy that we need to kind of tackle something big. And so sometimes it can be very, very helpful because it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to get all these little things done and now my way is clear. But sometimes procrastinating is just a way to procrastinate from doing something that we don't want to do. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, now that I have to write the annual report, I feel like I cannot do it until my, the shelves of my office have been cleared. <laughs> they haven't bothered me in the last five years, but now it feels like it's this urgent problem. And I think you have to be honest with yourself about whether what you're doing is going to help you bring in that focus or whether you're just looking for tasks to procrastinate. Because I do think sometimes it really can help you focus. But it's also the size of the task. If you're like, I have to like clean my whole house, that takes a long time. If it's like, I need to clean off the surface of my desk, okay, that maybe feels more manageable in terms of being helpful preparation. You also talk about this idea of uh, someday, someone. And mm. we talk a lot about this with our clients and on the show. And I have to tell you how my clients' faces light up with recognition when I go into the, so what you're telling me about this skirt is that someday there will be a situation or some place that you will go to and you will find the right blouse that you don't have yet. Yes. It will be exactly what you needed for some future event, unidentified at this moment, but you just yeah. know it's going to happen. And they, it's like, yes, that's exactly why I have this shirt for five years with the tag still on it. It's so interesting. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think it's this idea of wanting to be prepared and then also kind of like the uh, there is an immense satisfaction when you're like, oh, you know what? I happen to have the perfect thing. And then you go get it and it's like, oh my gosh, it's like the greatest feeling of all time. You hit the jackpot, the possession jackpot. But the fact is that's very, very rare. Usually, I mean, by the time you, that's been hanging in your closet for five years with the tags on it, by the time you're going to wear it now, it's already out of fashion or it's already kind of faded or pulled from just being on the hanger or or it's just not realistic. The best way to anticipate what's going to happen in the future is what's happened in the past. Sure. If you have never worn it in the past, why, you know, is it likely that you'll wear it in the future? And I think people even do this with their children, or at least a lot of women do this with their daughters. I've noticed this. They'll say, well, one day my daughter is going to want it. Right. And I'm like, okay, if this is a couture Valentino jacket, okay, we can talk about it. But this is an Ann Taylor pantsuit. I mean... I don't foresee that in 20 years, your daughter is going to come looking for this. Like, and that's just not realistic, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's really just a way to delay the decision fatigue of saying farewell to something or like, I never really wore it or I loved it at one time, but now I don't wear it anymore. Thinking that someday someone else will want it. It just is a way to ease the emotional kind of break, but it comes up all the time. But people hang on to think, oh, well, I need to keep this platter because yep. someday someone will want yep. it or they'll want to inherit it. I mean, it's very interesting to see what's happening now with the generations where the taste and furniture and household items has changed so much because there are all these beautiful things that nobody really wants. And that's painful for everyone because I have a friend who's got several, she's from the South and she's got a couple aunts who don't have children and she's an only child. And she says, it's all coming for me. I mean, I got so much China and silver coming my way. Like I'm just scared already because, you know, she just doesn't need a lot of really nice China. 
And yet it feels it's good. Someday someone, I'm sure these women think someday someone, my, my niece will want it. Yeah. She doesn't really want it. Well, it's really that idea of a delayed decision. So you yes. know, now the, the big old brown furniture that, that we don't yes. even want, let alone our kids, but it delays the decision, right? So yes. if I think maybe someday somebody will want this, then I don't have to make a decision about it, which is really a trap. Yes. And it keeps, yes. it keeps us living in storage lockers. Yes, absolutely. And also, I think there's an unwillingness to accept that things are worth only what people will pay for them. So you can say this is worth $5,000 all you want, but if somebody will only pay you $200 for it, you're not going to get 5000 And then paying $10,000 over the years to store it so that somebody else can come along and then get rid of it. It's like, yeah, you really have to just grapple with that up front. Absolutely. Oh, the storage lockers. One thing that has come to me from writing this book is if I were going to invest in any business, I would invest in self-storage. <laughs> that is a great business. You know, it's like once people have a storage unit, they just don't even think about what's in there anymore. Sure. You know, and it's like that's real money that you're spending on things you don't even you don't even know what's in there. Right. Yeah. I think it's like a billion dollar industry. Probably. It's gigantic. <laughs> and it's a great industry because like you're like a bat. You don't have to be in an attractive part of town. You can be right off the highway. It's like, you know, doesn't, you don't need much staff. Like it's just you just padlock some, you know. Yeah. And then when people abandon their things, then you try to go on. What's the name of that show? Storage Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Storage Wars. I've watched it. Yes. It's like, what is in there? But usually... It's like a battered monopoly set with half the money. <laughs> it's not some like cool thing. Right. Yeah, but someday someone, you're, but you're exactly right. And I think so much of clutter really is about delaying decision making. I don't want to have to decide. I don't want to have to go through all my daughter's clothes and decide which ones are good enough to use as hand-me-down. So I'll just keep everything now and worry about it later. Or I don't, you know, all my children's toys are precious to me. I don't want to have to go through like picking out like the few favorites. So I'll just store them all in a bunch of boxes and put them in the basement. And that's, you know, that's okay. I don't want to have to, you know, go through my college textbooks and decide, do any, am I ever going to, do I want any of them? No, I'll just keep them on a shelf. And it's like, it's just, the more we can decide now, the easier it gets later. And then for the people who come after us, for sure. It's terrifying to hear from some people who are facing 40 years worth of things that they have to go through. It's really overwhelming to contemplate. Yeah. And I feel that really that delayed decision-making is somehow connected to risk first, I think, and then also the fear of making a mistake. Because I think that's what everyone really, it's what holds people back sometimes from starting tidying or finishing tidying is just that worry that they're making the wrong decision. But all we can do in life with anything that we're trying to work towards is to make the best decision with the information that we have in that moment and live in the present and understand the resources we have, again, in that moment and move from there. So really, there's no need in holding on because all that does is yield a legacy of clutter or things that we've delayed I know personally, I've experienced the whole inheritance of a situation where you have to dig your way out of someone else's clutter, which they didn't value when they were living. And now you're expected to take that on instead of taking that time to grieve the loss and to celebrate their life. And it's just unfortunate. So 
that's also one of the reasons that I'm in this business because I just don't want anyone to have to experience that. Um, and I would love those conversations to happen before we move on so that it's clear where all of this stuff is going or who it's being handed down to. Well, I think, and I, I imagine you've seen this, is for some people, it's so overwhelming that they literally don't know how to start. And mm-hmm. that's why it's part of it is they just, you know, they've got whole rooms probably full of things that they don't even remember what's in there. And like the idea that, and that's why one of the things with Marie Kondo's method was like her, like, take all the clothes you have and put it in one big pile. Like, I think for some people, they would like have nervous collapse mm-hmm. or like every book in the house. It's like, oh my gosh. It's like, I'm sort of like, or you could just do one, one shelf. You know, just like one drawer, just tr- just open that one drawer and like, take a look in there. Maybe that's all you can do today, you know, but then you can slowly work up to it. But it's interesting about that regret. So one of the things that's interesting to me, so there's, I've seen, I think some people are in the middle, but some people are overbuyers and some people are underbuyers. Mm-hmm. Like overbuyers are the people who like buy gifts for people without knowing a recipient or buy, you know, a hundred years worth of cans of soup or, you know, a hundred things of paper towels and they're constantly buying for trips and they just are overbuyers. They just, they're always thinking that they need to buy something and prepare and, and get stuff. But then there are underbuyers like me and the underbuyers don't like to buy. They don't like to shop. They don't like, they don't like specialized. Like I don't use hair conditioner. That seems too specialized to me. I'm like, I wouldn't buy that, you know? And there's pros and cons to both being overbuyers and underbuyers. But the funny thing is, is you would think underbuyers would not have clutter, but they do because for an underbuyer, the prospect of needing to go out and buy something is dreadful. So they keep things because they're like, well, what would happen if five years from now I decided I did need a bread maker and I had to go get a bread maker or I needed a black cardigan and then I had to like go out and get a black cardigan? Like, ugh, I just hate the idea of even having to go to the mall. So I'm just going to keep everything because then maybe I'll just save myself a trip. And it's not helpful because you you never end up using those things anyway. So I think sometimes underbuyers, it's like, it's okay. There is a possibility that you might regret that you did not keep this, but it's, it's a risk you can take. <laughs> you can deal with the consequences. <laughs> exactly. Well, Gretchen, we loved exploring all of your 120 plus, I believe, tips in Outer Order Intercom. And here at SparkJoy, we love to close by asking, what's your favorite tidying tip if you could pick just one? My favorite tidying tip is the one-minute rule. And this is anything you can do in less than a minute, do without delay. So if you can hang up your coat, if you can print out a document and put it in the right file, if you can put something in the trash, if you can put a book back up on the shelf, anything you can do in less than a minute, don't let yourself put it off. And what that does is it, it gets rid of the kind of the scum uh, on the surface of life. It just gets rid of all those little tiny tasks. And it's really surprising how much just the visual noise will go away and just you'll have much more order, but you can just do it in the interstices of your day. You don't have to take even a half an hour or certainly not even an afternoon to do it. These are the things that you just, as you remind yourself as you go through the day, and then you just find that you're just not creating as much of a mess. And so you don't have to do as much tidying up. And when you are tidying up, then you're able to take it to a different level since you're not spending your time just like putting the pens back in the pen cup, which is what I seem to spend a lot of my time doing. I don't know why I can't use the same pen over and over again. <laughs> I've got, I take every pen out of the pen cup and then I have to put all the pens back in the pen cup. 
but it doesn't take any time as long as I do it along the way. That's a great tip. And Gretchen, we ask all of our guests, what is sparking the most joy for you at this moment? So I have a, a tip, a hack that is sort of tidying related. It's very mental tidying because one thing that always is kind of cluttering my mind is being afraid that I will lose my phone, that I'll leave it in a taxi, I'll leave it on the subway, I'll leave it you know, on the counter when I'm like buying a pack of gum or whatever. And I'm always like checking my phone and making sure that I have my phone. So I got this thing called the bandolier, which is like, I bought it from this site called the bandolier because I saw somebody wearing it. And it lets you wear it around your neck. And you just like sling it across your shoulder. And it just sparks joy for me every time I see it because it it serves its function so well. It's just a tool that is just very, very specifically well-designed for what it's meant to do. That gives me joy. And this thing has saved me. Like, you know, I travel all the time. So I'm always walking through airports and like, you've got to show your boarding pass. Yep. But then you're buying a cup of coffee and then you're in the ladies room and then you're going. And I just like, I just am so like, now I don't worry. I can just, it's around my neck. I will not lose that thing. And it just makes me so happy. <laughs> that reminds me of my Apple watch because ever since I got one, the two functions I probably use most frequently are the timer for a little power hour moments, I guess. <laughs> and also the ping function where you can ping your phone. I do that constantly. You know, I've got it. You know, <laughs> it's so funny that you say that. I have never used that. I'm going to start using oh that. Oh my gosh. It's brilliant. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I've got to do that. I'm so excited. That's like a whole new... Is that the thing where it's yellow and it looks like it's shaking? Or it's like the bell? If you swipe up, it's the little uh, phone with like the little little lines Run. on either side vibrating of it, like lines. vibrating. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my yep. gosh, I'm going to do that. That's so fantastic. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Oh, you've made me, you've sparked joy in me too. <laughs> <laughs> and any parting words of wisdom? Well, I just do believe that when our possessions feel right, you know, when we've decided what we're going to keep and what we're going to donate or recycle or throw away or give away, it just does give us a sense of order and energy and focus when everything is where we want it to be. It's what we want. We're actually using it. Everything's in its place. There really is just, a, it's strange how much it matters because you would think eh, it doesn't really matter. It really does matter for most people, not for everyone, but for most people, it really does matter. So it's worth taking the time to get it just the way you want because you really will feel better for it. Thank you so much, Gretchen. We just loved having you on the show. Oh, it was so fun to talk to you. I feel like we could talk about this all day long. I think we could. I think we could. (laughs) I think we could. We're order junkies here. So this this works. Oh, I love that phrase. (laughs) I'm an order junkie too. Absolutely. Good. Well, thanks so much for having me. You can visit GretchenRubin.com slash books to grab a copy of her latest book, Out of Order, Intercom, which debuts today. And there are several different options to order the book on her website. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how Kamari has impacted your life. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show, which helps us reach others along their tidying journeys. To extend your tidying experience, you can join the Spark Joy Club. 
visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the club to become a member of the Spark Joy community or join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your hosts, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media Inc. or the Kamari Consultant Community.